Within the first half of Leviticus, which is God explaining to humanity the way he wants to be approached, the initial seven chapters detail five specific offerings the people were to come to the tabernacle of meeting and make before him. Again, while God wants us to come to him. In Leviticus, one of these overarching ideas is that God cares how he's approached. Not just that he's approached, but how. There is a right and a wrong way we can approach a holy God. In fact, we're going to see this illustrated in a really radical story in Leviticus chapter 10. In chapter 1, we discussed what's called the Ola offering, the burnt offering, which illustrated for us not a sacrifice we made, but instead a sacrifice that God would graciously make in order to atone for our sins. Following this Ola burnt offering, chapter 2 then documents the Minha, or grain offering, which now articulated the appropriate way we should respond to God for the demonstration of His grace. So the Allah is all about God's grace. The Minha is all about now us responding to God's grace. Very cool stuff. Now, if you weren't with us, For either of these two studies, I encourage you to visit c316.tv and stay current, stay up to date. All of this stuff builds upon each other. Now, stemming from the Ola offering of grace and this Minha offering of a response to grace, chapter 3 transitions to what's called the Salem, or as it's translated into English, the peace offering, the Shalem offering. Now, defining this word Shalem, it's important. And the reason it's important is because it immediately, a definition, immediately clears up confusion and misconception that arises when people discuss this peace offering. Well, the customary Hebrew word we would use for peace, you know it, it's the word shalom. The word shalom had a more official legal connotation. For example, if you were at war with a neighbor, and you desired peace with that neighbor, the word shalom would be used. You'd go and you'd say, we need to stop fighting. Can we have peace with one another? Let's have peace. That said, if let's say you were at war with such a neighbor, and a peace agreement had already been reached, shalom is what would result. You would say, we are at peace with you. We don't want shalom. We have shalom. The idea behind the word shalem was that the offering here was not to achieve peace with God. No, not at all. Rather, it was an offering made to the Lord at the tabernacle of meeting, manifesting from a peace we had already been given. In his commentary on Leviticus 3, Pastor David Guzik observes, writing, quote, This was not an offering to make peace with God but an offering to enjoy peace with God. The whole reason Jesus made peace between the Father and the believer is so that peace could be enjoyed. Again, the ordering of these particular offerings is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. In fact, it's deeply significant. Think about it. After discussing the grace that we have received through His sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, the Ola offering, And then taking the time uh, to explain the right way that we should then respond to God for His grace, the Minha offering. God now discusses how this incredible grace should be enjoyed. By whom? You and I. His people. And thus we have this peace offering 
or the Shalem offering. Now, the unique details of this offering will not be specifically addressed until additional instructions are articulated to the priests in chapter 7. We'll get to those in a few weeks. The peace offering, though, was different than the previous two in this regards. While the burnt offering was completely consumed by God on the altar, nothing was left, totally consumed. And this memorial or grain offering was given to God with the remaining portion being allocated to, the, to Aaron and the, and the priest. We talked about that. A memorial portion would be offered, the rest would go to the priest. So in the burnt offering, it's all consumed by God. In the grain offering, part of it is consumed, a memorial, but the rest is really given to Aaron and the priests. This peace offering, however, is different than the other two. In fact, the offering itself ends up being divided into three different parts. As we'll see explained in chapter 3, the chapter we'll look at this morning, the blood, fat, liver, and kidneys of the sacrifice, will be offered to the Lord. That will be the Lord's. Interesting, right? In chapter 7, we'll learn how then the meat of the animal would be divided between the priests and the offerer with the instructions that they cook and prepare the meal and eat it together. So the blood, the fat, the liver, the kidneys go to God, the rest get cooked up, and a celebration ensues. A feast results from the peace we have with God. In this ancient Eastern culture, the idea of eating with someone or sharing a meal was both mystical and, well, frankly, a spiritual experience. The act of eating from the same dish or consuming the same animal, well, it illustrated oneness between individuals. It was emblematic of genuine community sharing a meal. Please know, peace with God. The peace that we have with God attained through the burnt offering. It now manifests within our lives the peace of God. So peace with God now yields the peace of God for one reason. In Jesus Christ, guess what? We are all one with Him. Hey, we took communion, illustrating that very reality. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus plays off this Eastern way of thinking about food. When he says the following, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, so if you respond to his invitation, I will come in to him and what? Dine with him and he with me. This oneness, this community, this relationship. To this point, in his letter to the believers in Colossae, the Apostle Paul will declare that the hope of glory, or in fact, the grand mystery that was hidden from generations, centered on the reality that God would not dwell with His people, but would dwell within His people. Oneness. The purpose behind the peace offering was to illustrate what manifested through this oneness that you and I now have with God because of His grace. Our peace with God, achieved through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, has now yielded the peace of God as we've been filled with His Holy Spirit. It's because of this oneness 
the oneness that you have with God through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, that your life naturally begins to transform. It begins to change. The Holy Spirit begins to work His way out, meaning your life starts symbolizing and showing and demonstrating and yielding, well, we'll just call them fruits of the Spirit, not you. People start encountering God. You're one with Him. Things like love and joy and peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, things foreign to this world. The world begins to see and engage and taste through a flavor emanating from you, God. Aside from this, as illustrated by the feast and the celebration that was connected with the peace offering, which, by the way, we'll unpack when we get to these things in Leviticus 7, our individual oneness with God, not only demonstrating characteristics of God, but in turn, it establishes true community with one another. In fact, there's so many things in this world that divide. So many things in this world that separate. If we're being honest, we look around the room and we would say, I have very little in common with most of the people here. But one thing. In fact, we have a greater commonality that transcends all other differences. You might call it a strand that connects us all. It's the grace of God and the fact that we have all been filled with the Holy Spirit. We are one, not just with God, but subsequently with each other. It's an amazing thing, which is why we offer a bit to the Lord and then the priests and the people eat the rest together. Oneness with God, peace. Life in communion with God as his people should foster a life of joy that we get to live out with each other. Let's dive into the text. Leviticus 3, beginning with verse 1. As mentioned, we're going to cover two chapters, so we're going to be reading chunks at a time, working through it. So follow along. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, again, this is the shalem offering, if he offers it of the herd, which would mean it's an oxen or a bull, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Now, in contrast to the burnt offering, which, if you remember back, required something specific. It required a male without blemish to be offered for atonement. And you'll, you'll discover the word atonement within the peace offering is never mentioned. So because atonement is not included in this particular offering, because that's already taken place, a female could be sacrificed, as long as, like the male earlier on, it was without blemish. So we find a distinction, a difference here. Verse 2, And he, this being the offerer, shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, against this is very similar to the burnt offering, and kill it, he, the offerer, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle, or splatter, more accurately, the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, this offering to the Lord would include the following. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. This is literally the inner parts of the animal. The two kidneys would be included in the offering to the Lord and the fat that is on them by the flanks or the loins. And what would be included is the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys. Now he, the offerer, shall remove these things, and Aaron's sons shall burn them 
on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now we should pause for a moment and just address why God, why God specifically wants, because I mean, he's clear the details, right? God is clear that, listen, we're going to share this meal, but this is what I want. I want the fat and the liver and the kidneys. Now, the blood's already splattered around the altar. God wants those things to be offered to him, leaving the rest to be consumed by us. Why this interesting dynamic? Now, you'll run, as you study Leviticus on your own, you'll run into all kinds of different theories. But the most likely theory in my position centers on, well, a biological explanation. But keep in mind, the same kind of quality controls that we have in place today, safeguarding the meat that we eat, it didn't exist in ancient cultures. Because the liver and the kidneys, biologically, are designed to filter out any type of toxins present in the animal's feed, it would make sense why those things would be excluded. Don't eat those things. Give those to me. They're not healthy for you. They're not good. Additionally, while we love to cook our meat, you know, with a little bit of fat for enhanced flavor, think ribeye, right? Because these particular animals in an ancient culture without safeguards roamed free. Fat was not healthy at all. You, you, can, you can read articles and, and whatnot about how tapeworm was largely uh, passed along to human beings through the eating, the consuming of the fat. So it was a good, healthy, easy to digest. Now, since the purpose of the peace offering is to share a meal with God, this oneness, it would appear here that God specified the impure parts of the animal be offered to him, leaving the better parts of the animal for us. I kind of like that. I mean, think about it, really. We're talking about oneness, relationship, community with God. Isn't it true pertaining to that relationship, that oneness with God, that we really do have the better end of the deal? Hey, we're going to be one together. I'll take the bad stuff. You. And in turn, I'll give you me. And it's all good because we'll be one together. Well, verse 6, if his offering as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. Now, with, as with the burnt offering, God now is going to be presenting alternatives. So if you couldn't afford an animal of the herd, so you can afford an oxen or a bull, an, 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 a different animal, one that you might be able to afford, was included. We, we saw this with the burnt offering. Now, the exclusion here is birds. Like, we don't have birds added into the peace offering, likely because there wasn't enough meat on a bird to share. So you could with a lamb, you could with a goat, you could with a bull or an ox, but a bird is excluded because we can't share that anyway. Verse 7, If he the offerer offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, this picture of transference, and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. He shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering, 
as an offering made by fire to the Lord, its fat and the whole fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone. Now, this is a different animal, so there's kind of a different dissection of the animal. We're told that the fat that covers the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys, the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove the worshiper. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food and offering made by fire to the Lord. Verse 12, and if he, his offering is a goat, so this is that third concession, a bull or an ox of the herd, of the flock, we have sheep, now we have goats. If it's a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. The sons of Aaron shall sprinkle his blood all around on the altar. He shall offer from its offerings as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma, all the fat." Is the Lord's. Verse 17, this shall be a perpetual statute, or, or basically, a better translation would be an everlasting limitation. Throughout your generations and all of your dwellings, you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now, some of you are really worried about the steak you were planning to have later this afternoon and says this is a problem. Because the blood and the, the, the particular consecration, the consuming of blood, these things will be dealt with extensively in chapter 17. We're just going to kind of set the, our commentary aside until then. Now, while the, while the way the specific parts of the animal are divided up is unique to the peace offering, there is no doubt that certain aspects of the sacrifice should have reminded you of something. Again, if you had just turned to Leviticus, opened chapter 1, started reading, the Ola offering, the Minha offering, now you're getting to the Shalim offering, you're going to be like, wait a minute, this really does sound a lot like what? Not the grain offering, but rather the burnt offering. It sounds somewhat repetitive. But there's a reason for this. Like, both offerings have a lot of similarities. And both the worshiper, when they came to offer it, was required to put their hand on the head of the animal, whether it be the oxen or the sheep or the goat. And not only that, but the, the worshiper was then required after this kind of this symbolic thing, it was then your job to slaughter the animal. You had to kill the, the animal before the tabernacle of meeting. It was then incumbent on the offer to butcher the animal. You were the one that had to pull out the knife and cut it up appropriately. And then the priest, well, they took the parts, they splashed the blood around the altar, and then they made the actual sacrifice. So there's a lot of similarities. Now the obvious correlations between the peace offering and the burnt offering, they were designed to remind you of something very, very important. And that is the, the way in which you had received your right standing before God. So much of the peace offering, again, not to earn peace with God, but to celebrate the peace I have with God, was based on a reminder of how that peace was earned, of how it was attained. Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered by God as a sacrifice, was sufficient to atone for our sin. You see, Jesus' work accomplished on our behalf is how any of us have peace at all with God. You know, there's an undeniable truth 
I hope you know that this morning. That you will always be restless in this life. You will always have an uneasiness, a longing for something more, a dissatisfaction with what is, until you come to terms with your Creator and find peace with Him. There is no peace with God without the peace of God. And there is no peace of God without peace with God. To this point, the simple fact is, you can only experience peace when you've received peace. You can only enjoy peace when you've received and accepted peace. But always know this, peace with God is only possible once your sins have been atoned for by a sacrifice you could never make to God, but one He made for you, peace is found in Jesus Christ. His work, His merit, nothing that you do, and that should be freeing. It's based in His grace. You know, it's worth noting, again, that this passage, this offering, did not intend to create peace with God, but to manifest from a peace you've already been given. How glorious, right? That from the first time since Eden, Jesus' declaration from the cross of Calvary to Telestai, it is finished, gave you a way to have peace with your Creator. It's amazing. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, we're told, Therefore, having been justified, not by works, but by our faith, what do we have? What's yielded? What's produced? We have. We possess. We don't earn. You don't have to work to get something you already have. You have, through justification by faith, peace with God. Through your energies, your... No, 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 no. Through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, following the peace offering, in chapter 4, we'll now address what's called the sin offering. I don't have a fancy Hebrew word for this. It's just the sin offering. Let's dive right into the text, verse 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses. Again, I know some of you are surprised. We're actually getting to a second chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not be done, and does any of them. Now, pause. Let's pause for a minute. For starters, you're going to notice in chapter 4, it begins here with the identical language. Well, the whole book begins. The language we found in Leviticus chapter 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses. Now what that tells us is that God here is presenting a division. He's actually separating the burnt, the grain, and the peace offerings from the sin and later trespass offerings. Now the most notable difference, distinction, is that while the first three, the burnt, grain, and peace, were what we would call 
free will offerings, that they were voluntary in nature. The last two, the sin and the trespass offerings, they're mandatory. They're not free will. They're required. Now, as it pertains to the burnt offering, you might say the sacrifice for sin was made in a general sense. It was the first offering to be made as a general atonement for man's sin. And yet, you will notice as we get into the the sin and the trespass offerings, God now mandates offerings be given, sacrifices by the guilty to atone for specific misgivings. So the difference between the sin and the burnt is the burnt is a general atonement for your sin. The sin offering is for specific sins, specific errors, specific trespasses. Now, aside from this, as we work our way through the passage, with, by the way, the singular exception of sins committed by common people, there will, again, be a familiar phrase that you won't find. Up until this point, it's repeated over and over and over again. But with the burnt, the grain, the peace offerings, over and over and over, you'll find that these offerings were made, they were placed on the altar, a smell arose to heaven, it was a fire on fire on the altar, and what, was, what were we told? That, that all of them, that there was a sweet aroma to the Lord, right? You saw that. And all the first three, there's always a sweet aroma by the offering. The difference, though, is it would seem that God did not enjoy the sin or the trespass offerings. We, you'll not find that phrase. Again, there's one exception which we'll, which we'll get to. But by and large, God takes no delight in sin. Especially the sins of people that have tasted and experienced His grace. Now, broadly speaking, in the context of grace, our response to grace, and the peace we have through our oneness with God, the sin offering established the way in which God's people, check this out, were to respond to Him when we've blown it. Again, don't miss that. The context, the order, it's not an accident. You have experienced God's grace. You've learned how to respond to God's grace. You've enjoyed peace with God. And guess what? You're going to blow it. And when you do, here's a concession for this. The sin art. This is what it's about. When you blow it, after my grace, after the response, after peace, you're still going to mess up. It's okay. The context. Well, it's important. Look again at the text. We read, God says, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, this word we have translated as unintentionally. It works, kind of. It's incomplete. Again, we're going from an ancient Hebrew language to English. And English isn't that good of a language, especially when you translate it like I do into Southern. The old King James Version translates this word as through ignorance. Again, kind of gives us a different angle, but it's also uh, incomplete. According to the Strong's lexicon, the word literally means to sin in error or inadvertently. Think of it this way. In contrast to sins that are committed willfully, or what we might refer to as deliberate sins, The sins being referred to in this offering are sins that just manifest, not deliberately, but because, well, we're sinners. It's not deliberate, but involuntary. They just happen. 
I don't know if you're aware, but you're really good at sinning. Like, what's easier to do, the right thing or the wrong thing? 100% of the time, it's much easier to do the wrong thing. That's the struggle, right? So these are sins involuntary through ignorance, but they just manifest because I'm broken. And and I'm still in this process of being redeemed, of being fixed, of being washed and mended by God's grace. We mess up. We sin, but our motivations weren't malicious. You guys understand kind of this, how it's different, a little bit different? Okay. Now, with all this in mind, in this chapter, God is going to provide four different circumstances by which a sin offering should be given. Now, we're going to go through these four different circumstances, and then at the end, I'm going to try to tie all of this together in some more macro points. Let's just work our way through it. Now, the first sin, these are sins committed by and note the anointed priests. So this is the four circumstances. The first relate to the anointed priest. Verse 3 of Leviticus 4. If the anointed priest sins, again, because he's also a sinner, bringing guilt on the people. And again, what, what this implies is that because of their priestly position, their sins, while not being different, well, they carried more far-reaching consequences if they affected other people because of their spiritual position. Let that anointed priest offer to the Lord for his, for his sin, which he had sinned, that's redundant, thanks, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the blood, bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord. We have a whole new location here. In front of the veil of the sanctuary. This was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, the actual tabernacle. And no doubt the location of the priest splattering this blood they're at the veil, where only the priest, by the way, could see it. It served as a constant reminder. He would always be walking through, and he'd see the blood at the, at the veil, reminding him of his sin. Verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. This altar represented prayer. The horns, the idea of the horns of the altar, was symbolic of power, of authority. The idea here is that in anointing the horns of this altar of prayer, the priests, they were acknowledging that there was power in not just prayer, but in the atonement, the spreading of blood. The anointed priest shall pour the remaining blood of the bull. Imagine how much that was, by the way. At the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of of the tabernacle of meeting, which no doubt this location of the blood being bucketed out served as a public acknowledgement of the priest of his sin before the people. So there was a reminder in the tabernacle, but then there was also a public acknowledgement. Verse 8, He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys 
and the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. As it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, which we just looked at, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. Now, after burning these parts on the altar, similar to the way that you would do the peace offering or really the burnt offering, what follows now is completely unique. But, the Lord says, the bull's hide and all its flesh with its legs and head, its entrails and offal, or literally its dung. The whole bull, the anointed priest, shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. The, the location outside the camp where the ashes are poured out, that, that's it's interesting. We know that the tabernacle of meeting was specifically situated where within the camp? The dead center. Meaning that a trip from the tabernacle of meeting to the outer parts of the camp would have required some estimate up to a five-mile walk carrying the majority of the bull. This being labor-intensive. It's out in the open. People saw it. Again, the priest in his robes and his garments. Again, we'll look at some concessions to that because they were able to change clothes to do this. Just an interesting picture. Typologically, for the student, it's worth noting that Jesus, the ultimate sin offering, he was slaughtered where? Outside of the camp. The second circumstance we have here for the sin offering. So the first is the anointed priests. The second is the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 13. Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Now the idea being presented here is that the entire nation of Israel ends up awakening to the reality that they've been operating in error. And thus there's this desire for a national repentance. They've sinned against the commandments of the Lord. They want to make atonement for that. The nation. And in such a situation, a young bull is brought to the tabernacle. Again, the congregation assembles, but it's the elders, the representatives of the people that lay their hands on the head of the bull. And, and it, the bull is then slaughtered. Verse 16, we're then told that the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Again, that should serve as a reminder to the priest, again, of not just his sin, but the sin of the nation, of which he's responsible for because his job is the spiritual health of the nation. So there should also be a reminder of this inside the tabernacle. Verse 18, he, the priest, 
shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the same as before. He shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle, again serving as a public reminder of the people's sins. Verse 19, He shall take all the fat from it, this being the young bull, burn it on the altar. He shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them. Notice it's plural. And it shall be forgiven them. Again, plural. National repentance. National reconciliation. Then he, the anointed priest, shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it. As he burned the first bull, it is a sin offering for the assembly. Now, I want to make one side comment here. I ran across one liberal commentator that used this particular passage to make an appeal for America to engage in national repentance for things like, well, real crimes of our past, things like slavery, how we've treated the poor in times past, abortion. He didn't mention that one because he was liberal, but I'll throw it in. Even our position on guns, that we need this, like he says, imagine if as a nation we awoke up to the crimes of our guns and we came and we, alter, we, we offered this bull as a national repentance, blah, 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 blah. Now, the irony of that kind of a position is that with one breath, these liberal commentators shirk, shriek, hate the idea of America being viewed as a Christian nation, you know, because we're not. But then, ironically, they then attempt to apply concepts aimed at dealing with God's nation, His people, Israel, and how they should deal with, like, well, really, social injustices. So on one aspect, we shouldn't view America as God's people, but on the same token, when it's pertaining to things about God's people, let's call for national repentance of America, but wait a second, we're not God's people, so how's what's being communicated here applicable to us? I just don't buy it. We'll move on. The third circumstance for the sin offering now pertains. So we have first the anointed priests. We also have the congregation, the nation. Now we have the ruler of the people. Verse 22, when a ruler has sinned, which they do, and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God, and anything which, which not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring of his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. While the priest had to offer an adult bull, the congregation a young bull, it's now stipulated that the ruler had to bring to the tabernacle a male kid or, 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 or small animal, uh, a child of the goats. So a little guy. Verse 24, And he, the ruler, shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, Kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. You'll notice here, just aside, no need to pour uh, blood before the veil because the ruler wasn't allowed to enter the holy place at all anyway. And he, the priest, shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him, the ruler, concerning his sin. How awesome it is that it shall be forgiven him. God will forgive. 
The final circumstance for the sin offering pertains to, now we find, the common people. We read verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring of his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish. Again, the ruler was to bring a male kid of the goats. For the common person, it was a female. That would suffice. Had to be without blemish for the sins which he had committed. Verse 29, And he, this commoner, shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with its, his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour all of the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He, the offerer, shall remove all of its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifices of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar. Again, this is unique. As a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the Lord finds this to be, to be sweet. Different than the other applications. So the priest shall make atonement for him. It shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb... As his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. And again, this is a concession. If you don't have a goat, a lamb will, will do. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. Kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. I appreciate that because we don't have it repeated. Finally, God's like, you know what I'm talking about. Let's continue. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed. It shall be forgiven him. Again, as we read through this, you notice that there is a kind of a particular cadence to it. There's a flow. There's a rhythm. As we mentioned in our introduction, the repetition, the flow, the rhythm in Hebrew was designed to help people memorize this, which again, the children, the kids in Israel, this is what the first thing they were required in their education to memorize, and so it helped. It was with song to a degree. Now let me close our time together by unpacking this sin offering, and this will be quick. And I'm going to do this with really three macro lessons that we can draw from the text itself. So three big ideas that I want you to walk away from the sin offering. Again, the peace offering we looked at earlier, that's kind of self-explanatory. I think you've got that. In regards to the sin, why all of this? What's the point of all of this? What can I take from this when I leave this morning? One, the very existence of the sin offering. Again, after what? The burnt, which is about grace. The grain, which is about us responding to grace. The peace, what's yielded from grace, our enjoyment of the oneness we have with God. The very existence of an offering following those three things tell me something important. God knows that you are still going to sin. <laughs> or why have an offering at all? You know, like what grace there is in the fact that God keeps his expectations of you and I appropriate to who we are. It's an amazing thing that God would demonstrate grace towards us knowing who we are anyway. But the fact that that grace would remain sufficient fully knowing that we're morons 
I'm including myself. Just don't take it personally. He tells us how we should respond to his grace. He throws a party to celebrate our peace and oneness with him. And then the next breath, God makes a concession, knowing you and I are going to blow it sooner or later. And I'm so encouraged by just the existence of such an offering. The second lesson that we can draw from the sin offering is the importance of confession. The confession is important. In all four of the scenarios of the sin offering, and the scenarios were specifically applicable to national matters of Israel. We're not Israel. We're the church. This is all different. But taking from the four just a macro lesson is that the sin offering was of no effect. I'm thankful it's there because God knows I'm going to blow it, but it's of no effect for anyone at all unless the individual or the guilty party is first willing to acknowledge their error. The sin offering matters not to a ruler who's still ignorant of his sin and is not willing to admit it, or the commoner, or the nation, or the priest. In every scenario, in all four, confession of sin, confession of guilt, the acknowledgement, I blew it, is paramount. Which again, we should not have an advertisement to doing because God's already aware we're sinners. He's like, hey, I've got this sin offering because I know you're going to sin. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to use that because, you know, I, I don't sin. God's like, you're an, you're an idiot. Like I'm, I'm giving you, like I'm giving you a mechanism, because I know you. But what is first required? You gotta own it. Like in every situation, we find the similar refrain: "When the fill in the blank has sinned and done something intentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God, and anything which not be done is guilty. If his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring fill in the blank." There's an awareness that begins, and then a confession that commences. Like, understand, the idea here was not to embarrass anyone. It wasn't to embarrass the individual. The idea of all of these procedures associated with it, and the reminders of placing blood at certain places, and having to carry the offering out, the whole thing was the acknowledgement of sin and then engaging in a path of healing. That's what confession does. If you've hurt someone, you will never find that relationship with the individual restored if you're not first willing to confess and acknowledge you did something wrong. That applies to your marriages as well. In James 5, verse 16, we're encouraged to confess your sin to one another. And pray for one another. Why? So that we can gossip about everybody later on? Or we can judge each other behind each other's back? No. We confess why? That we might be healed. In 1 John 1, 9, we're promised. It's a promise of God that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. While it's true, coming to the tabernacle, and bringing before the Lord the sin offering, that there was a corporal nature to it. For the common person and for the ruler or individuals, please understand, 
That was the extent of their public show of remorse. It was only in the two situations of of national sin or the sin of an anointed priest that the spectacle of carrying the bull through the camp outside was required. Now the reason this was necessary in the case of national repentance, well, that's self-evident. And yet in regards to the sin of the priest, because their job was so important that it could, as we're told, bring guilt upon the people, verse 3, This overt act was designed, again, not to embarrass the priest, but to protect the priesthood by adding transparency. You know, spiritual leaders, and this is the application that I took, we're called to a higher standard, that's true. But never forget, there's a sin offering established for spiritual leaders, meaning that God knows we too will sin. And when a pastor sins, I find that the best thing that he can do is just publicly own it and be transparent, revealing that he is as, he is as in equal need of God's grace as the people that sit in the pews. The third lesson, final lesson that we can draw from the sin offering. So one, God knows we're going to blow it. Two, confession is important. Three, <laughs> atonement remains. You know, one of the fascinating components of the sin offering is that within God's instructions, two new concepts emerge in Leviticus. First, within the book, first time we run across the word guilty. First time the word guilty is used. The other thing that we find unique is that this is also in this particular offering, the first time, not just that we find the word guilty, but also the word forgiveness both occurring within the concept of atonement. What's even more interesting is that in Leviticus 4, verse 13, we're we're presented the first time in all of Scripture that the word guilty is used. In the Hebrew, the idea being communicated is more than just the acknowledgement of a person's guilt, but the admission that that offense demanded judgment. The first word, well, the first time we're introduced to the word Uh, Forgiveness here in Leviticus, which means to pardon one of guilt, to spare judgment that they deserved. It's the second time we find it in Scripture. So guilty, this is the first time we find it at all in Scripture. Forgiveness, it's the first time in Leviticus, second time in the Bible, and that's important. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to wrap this together. In Exodus 32, Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai. He receives two tablets of the law, right? God's like, you need to go back. Something nefarious is going on. So he comes back down to the camp, and what does he find? He finds that the people here have crafted, they've gotten Aaron to craft a golden calf. And here they are, worshiping and dancing and partying around a golden calf. Moses has got the law, two tablets, and he sees these people, the presence of God is on the mountain, and here they are worshiping a calf. And Moses throws down and breaks the tablets. And then this is what happens. He goes to the entrance of the camp and he declares, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. Now in response, we're told that it's the sons of Levi or Moses' literal family that come to him. Then Moses said to them, let me read it. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side, go throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, his companion and his neighbor. Those who are not remorseful So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. 
And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And then following that purge, Exodus 32 closes with us being told that the Lord sends a plague on all of the people because of what they did with the calf. Now, why am I bringing this up? In Exodus 34, after this whole debacle, imagine elders come up to the front, draw your swords. Anybody that's not remorseful, take them out. I mean, this is just this is an incredible, weird scene. 3,000 people die. Moses now goes back to the presence of the Lord. What happens? Well, first, he's destroyed the law already. So God gives him two new tablets of stone. And then Moses prays this prayer. He says, If I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. The word pardon, that is the first mention of the Hebrew word we find in Leviticus being translated as forgiveness. And then what does God do? He proceeds to reestablish His covenant with Israel. Now here's my point. Regarding the order of God establishing His people, here in Leviticus, people who had just a few weeks earlier had worshipped a golden calf and had seen the Levites kill 3,000 people because of it. God is establishing now within an application for the sin offering that whether you were an anointed priest, a ruler, or a commission, or just a commoner, whoever you were, if the national consensus is that we need to atone for a societal sin, the process by which the guilty could come to the tabernacle to make atonement with God and receive His forgiveness was clear and awesome. You've already screwed up. I know you're going to screw up again. I'm just going to go ahead and preempt this by showing a way you can confess and repent so I don't have to kill you again. That's what's happening here. So that you could come and say, God, we've sinned against your commandments. And now here, we're offering an animal to make things right. God provided a way for the guilty to be forgiven. Don't miss that. And yet, and this is how we'll tie it all together. If like the other sacrifices we've looked at, in this sin offering, God is establishing the structure for a much deeper spiritual reality, the application takes a whole new twist. Now keep in mind, the sin offering aimed at making atonement concerning a specific sin, came after the burnt offering that made atonement for all of your sin. So, so keep that in mind. Now, I mentioned earlier how the, the sacrifice of the peace offering intended to remind the worshiper that it had been through God's work of atoning for sin that you now have peace with God. That's why the connection was made back to the burnt offering. The same connection here now with the sin offering should yield the same effect. Here you go. When I sin, I'm going to speak personally, a born-again believer who's already placed my faith and the atoning sacrifice Jesus made for me, when I sin in such a context, what does God now require for my atonement? For my sin to be covered? Does God now demand, I, like we find here in Leviticus, go and make some kind of sacrifice to get back into His good graces? 
No. A thousand times no. Not at all. You see, when I sin, nothing is required for me to to have atonement. Because my sin's been atoned for. My guilt has already been permanently satisfied by Jesus' work on the cross with the burnt offering pointed to all along. You see, the application of the sin offering here in that context is that in this place of failure, your failure, a failure God already knows you're going to do, His appeal now is that you would acknowledge your sin and then do what? Come back to the place of atonement. Come back to the sacrifice of Jesus. Come back to the cross of Calvary. Come back to the burnt offering by which all atonement comes. Though you and I are all guilty because of sin and because we also deserve judgment, how incredible it is to be reminded then in the place of failure and sin of what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has already bore my sin. He's already borne my guilt. Jesus has already took upon Himself the wrath of God in my place. And why did He do any of that? For forgiveness and restoration. The whole point of the sin offering. I close, dear Christian, by saying in the place of failure, please know God is not surprised. Sometimes we're so hesitant to confess our sin before the Lord as if God wasn't already all-knowing. God, I don't know if you maybe missed what I did the other day, but I just felt like I needed to come. No. God already knows, which should make confession easier. You're not breaking news to God. Yeah, I'm aware. I saw it. Confess your sin. Take responsibility for your actions. Knowing the atoning sacrifice that Jesus already made for you remains as sufficient today as it did then and that He is more than able. In fact, you're still presently right with God. Zach, you don't know what I did. It doesn't know. I know what Jesus did. And it's bigger than what you did. He gave you a righteousness that remains sufficient. He has justified you in a work that can't be tarnished or done away with. Romans 5, Paul says that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from wrath through him. Amen and amen and amen. Father, we thank you for your word.